find a quick beat. Sew your name patch on your jacket. It's time for the 27 Club, the world's only podcast about the group so exclusive you have to die to get in. Hosted by Pete and PJ. I got it back. Yeah, welcome. PJ, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Pete. Also, welcome to the show to you. Oh, thank you so much. I was racing through traffic to get here, but thankfully I took I took the exit for show and it was it got me right to the door. And then I jumped out and sprinted through the studio, uh, elbowing, elbowing engineers out of my way. And then I finally Little made it. Little old ladies. Exactly. On a yeah. Studio yeah. tour. I, I slid. <laughs> I, I like baseball slid underneath two guys carrying a big mirror. And then I uh, made it into the studio, put the old cans on, heaved a big sigh, and then we counted down and came right into it. Nailed it. Yeah. Nailed it. You nailed the landing on that one. Pretty great. I, however, live at the studio mm-hmm. because I've been kicked out of my house. And um, the motorcycle, the, the motorcycle kids kicked you out. Yeah. <laughs> they took over yeah. your. They, they took, took over the over. whole block. It's a real, it's a real Warriors <laughs> Mad Max situation <laughs> yeah. going on out here. That's no good. Yeah, it's really lawless out there in the mountains, huh? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's so hard for cops to get over the mountains. It's you know. <laughs> yeah, these cops—they just, they just don't have town. enough equipment to do their job. Yeah. That's the one thing we know about cops. Not enough. Not enough to do their jobs. If there's anything I've heard recently in the news, it's that they don't have enough equipment, and that's why they're bad. That's right. Uh, Well, welcome to the show. We're in, we're deep into our uh, power pop phase. I realized today we've been talking about Badfinger for a couple of episodes, and the next member of the 27 Club we're going to talk about, also a early to mid-70s power pop group, so... We're, uh, yeah, we already did the blues in the '60s, and now we're into the 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 power pop phase, and then we're gonna get into whatever the fuck you call Nirvana. So, um, I think Neil Young has a word for it, but I don't know. You know what? Here's a crazy thing: grunge is kind of just harder power pop. I would agree. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Not that crazy. Turns out, not not much discussion no. on that one. <laughs> so I guess we'll call. Our big, our big thing for Nirvana will be that they're really just power pop, but you turn that amp all the way up to 10. I would say Nirvana is like, particularly is like hmm. harder edged power pop. Yeah. I would say there are other grunge bands that are not. That's true. Like Pearl Jam, I ne- wouldn't necessarily put into that, but. That's true. Nirvana for sure. That's a good point. You always have you to like have it, the one catchy group of the, of the genre. To get yeah. those new listeners in, and then they get into like Soundgarden, Soundgarden, <laughs> yeah. Pearl Jam, others. Uh, yeah, more. Boy, yeah. you got to think Col- how many yeah. collective soul. Yeah, how many Seattle grunge bands were there that were like, "Holy shit, we are on a rocket ride to the moon!" And then by 1995, <laughs> it was just all over for them. Like they were barely booking yeah. local clubs. Um, six hundred. I would say, <laughs> yeah. Give or every take. single band except Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Basically. Let's look that up. All right, we're gonna get we're gonna get a little. I'm sure we'll talk about the scene when we get to Nirvana, but I'm just gonna go Nirvana yeah. and go to that Associated Acts section. I'm just curious if there's anyone we haven't heard of. Wow, they don't have any Associated Acts. Okay, let's just go to Grunge then and see what Wikipedia tells us are the are the grunge bands. 
All right, let's see. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. Oh, yeah, Alice in Chains, of course. Stone Temple right, Pilots, right. also, of course. I know those bands. So those are the five they list as, like, the main Stone Temple groups, Pilots, which, though. You know, those last two are less a famous. A little bit later. But not not famous. Oh, no, I'm wrong. Stone Temple Yeah, 1992 is the album they list. 1992 from Alice in Chains' okay. album. Yeah. 1994 for Soundgarden's Super Unknown. Uh, 1991 for Pearl Jam's debut, and then 91 for Nirvana's, not debut, but wow. when Nevermind came out. So look at that. All right, mm. well, a little peek forward at uh, where we're going to be in a few weeks. Uh, but for now, we're still deep in the 70s. Balls deep in the 70s, we're balls yeah. deep. You know, it is our most comfortable era, I would say. We love, look, yeah. we love the 60s. We love the 70s. Love we it. Are, I would say we're, we it's a deal wash with on the, the 80s. 80s. Yeah. <laughs> and then the 90s, similarly hit or miss, uh, for sure. Yeah. And then the 2000s, uh, we just really don't have any love for at all. So. No. But I really Who's do think. Ever even heard of the band Franz Ferdinand? Yeah. I, That's the one I yeah, know. Yeah, That's right. It, well, and here's the thing. The 60s is fun because everything gets to be talked about in the context of the Beatles. <laughs> Yeah, but the seventies is, is fun because everyone starts to get a little older. Everyone starts to do a little bit more drugs and/or try to get off drugs, and it all just yeah. gets more interesting. And like, you know, yeah, no one's almost no one's hitting their stride in the seventies. <laughs> at least that we talk about. <laughs> almost everyone is like, yeah, starting to have to take some. Turns. There are a lot of bands that did. That's true. But nobody we've talked about. No, and no one nobody will ever talk talked about. about. I don't. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all right. It's a, you know what's crazy? Um, everybody in the seventies and early eighties seemed to get the same haircut when they were either starting to do more drugs or getting off of drugs. You mean the like the the short haircut? They all got the same yeah. short. I think we talked about this yeah. with the Rolling Stones, and then it's also they all go long from long long to short, and it's bad. Yeah, they all get like kind of a fringy short haircut, and then they all and start wearing like stonewashed jeans. And like yeah. tucking their t-shirts in, it's real. Yeah, yeah. in like all 1979 to 1982, I'm thinking the members of Led Zeppelin are great examples of that. Yeah, and you're right. Like where, you look up a 1985 Led Zeppelin, yeah, yeah. like a lot of yeah. it is people who get off drugs. But Jimmy Page famously like really only gets more into drugs when he starts looking like a weird dad. Uh, yeah, which culminates in as we talked about on the Beach Boys, boys an incredible performance on the Fourth of July. <laughs> Yeah, where the Beach Boys of all people have to cut off Jimmy Page's amp because he's so out of out of so touch, willing too much. Yeah. And let's relive that one more time, Pete. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, you can go find that clip. That won't be hard at all. Just go find that clip, cut it, drop it in here. I've never edited a podcast episode, but I assume that's really easy to do. So, so easy. Yeah, yeah no. the easiest thing. Yeah. Really, what's difficult is uh, having to bleep stuff. That oh you know, God, I, I spend hours you. trying to bleep each individual thing. Yeah. Whenever we say words like, "No, you know what? I don't want to do that bit because then people will think I actually said like bad words." Bad words. Well, you know, it's funny when like, you don't say bad words, but then you bleep it to make it sound like it's bad words because then it's that's what I'm saying. Edgy. Like what? Like the count. What if video. I say frick? Yeah. You know? That's funny. Oh, what's the one oh. from Battlestar Galactica? 
uh, uh, spork. I don't know, but they have some weird, dumb, made up frack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a real word. Yeah. Here's the deal, though. If that's a bad word in the future, but not a bad word now, wouldn't they still not allow it in the future? Because it's, it really just goes to show PJ. There's no meaning behind these words, man. If you free your mind, you can say anything you want. Not anything. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say satire. I think the N word's still off limits. (laughs) There's some satire. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I know you talk so, about how much you want to be able to say the N-word. <laughs> well, PJ, I think, you know what? I think we got to get into it. We're covering a lot of ground here. Uh, it's true. With, this is true. With this uh, so-called band we're talking about. And um, yeah. who the fuck do they get off calling themselves I a I mean, band? look, by the end of this episode, I don't think anyone could have called them a band. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um. The Finger Boys are still at it. They're still, you know, it's crazy. They used to call us the Finger Boys in high school. That's right. Is that where you got? Yeah, they're still all their finger. They're stuck in those little finger trap toys. Mm. This is the story of their career. Stuck in those little finger trap toys, just trying to get out, and they just can't quite. Uh, So, and it's labeled the Beatles. If it was like a satirical New York Times cartoon, exactly. PJ, so apropos for what we're about to talking about talk about because the next line in my notes is apple is falling apart <laughs> yeah, of course yeah uh so we talked about straight up a pretty good pretty well received uh not exactly like a hit hit but it you know it sold well mm-hmm. um but at this point apple is falling apart at the seams uh badfinger has one more record in their contract with apple uh but at the moment alan klein is cutting back all expenses including paying for studio time uh, so they're having, so they're struggling to even like book studio time because they're having to pay for it themselves because their record company is too poor to do it. Yeah. And Which at what point do you think everybody was like, this Alan Klein guy might be bad? I think by this point they knew, but couldn't. They knew? Okay. Yeah, I, I kind of thought the it. Beatles realized like fairly quickly, but it was just they, well, you, all they that couldn't Stone get stuff out went down before of the that. Apple stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, but I think at this be. point they just could not get out from under all these contracts, and it like took years for them to get get out from under it and everything. And so, yeah, I I think they do realize at the very least that they're out of money, and he's not the guy to fix it. I don't know if they necessarily realize yeah. that he's like completely screwed them in general right. yet. But anyway, so Stan Pauly, uh, their manager works to figure out their finances, uh, but is being accused of mismanagement by his other clients, and his name appears, his name comes up during Senate hearings about the mafia paying off a New York's New York State Supreme Court judge. So, oh. yeah, the... Cool. Yeah, Stan Pauly apparently involved in some shady shit, uh, but the boys think, eh, we might as well stay with him. Who cares? Yeah. So the Finger and Boys finally do get into a studio uh, with Todd Rundgren again. Uh, but Todd quits in the first week because of a pay dispute. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, right. So then they decide to self-produce the album. They submit it. It gets rejected by Apple. And then they hire 
Yeah. <laughs> Why the fuck is Apple rejecting anything that they're putting out? I know, right? Like, they're like, we're not paying for studio time. They did this all yeah. themselves. Yeah, fucking. They're not paying for studio out. time. They're not going to pay to promote it. Like, who cares? No, absolutely. They don't not. need to. Yeah. It doesn't need to be good. You're not even going to try to sell it. <laughs> so, right. Then they hire Chris Thomas, who is a guy who worked with the Beatles a lot, Pink Floyd. He'll go on to work with Elton yeah. John and the Sex Pistols and a million famous bands. So they hire Chris Thomas. Uh, to produce the second version of the album. Uh, it ends up being recorded in five different studios over the length of a year, which we talked about straight up taking about nine months with two different producers. So they're, mm-hmm. they broke their record already for longest, <laughs> longest album process. Yep. Uh, so the release was delayed once they finally got it done because Joey Molland, the new guitar player, uh, he showed up after they signed with Apple. He'd never signed a contract with Apple. He had just signed like oh. a thing to be part of the Bad Finger Enterprises thing with Stan Pauly, but he'd never signed anything with Apple. So Apple couldn't release it until he signed a publishing contract with them. Pauly tried to leverage this to the band's advantage, but Apple <laughs> took <laughs> called his bluff, just credited all the songs to Bad Finger and released the album. So <laughs> yeah. So good job, Stan. <laughs> Not only Damn, is he, he shady as shit and stealing money, he can't even successfully negotiate with a completely failing enterprise of a studio. Yeah. So. Just all around. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty great. You know that... Also, just... I I love... I want to see a Bad Finger movie for a lot of reasons, but it would just be a fantastic scene of them all sitting around and him being like, so they just credited it to the band and all them just being like, you didn't think of that? <laughs> that never occurred to you that they could just do that? You know, he remi- based on everything I've heard of him just now, um, yeah. he seems like that uh, character in The Simpsons who's the lawyer. His name is Old Gil. Okay. You, you're you not a Simpsons not watcher. Not familiar. No. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> Some listener out there. He's going to crack it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. love it. Uh, so, and so this album comes out. It is the last album released on Apple, not by a Beatle. So they were the last, mm-hmm. the last band standing, um, first and last, eh? Yeah. So also a few years later. So this, like I said, was not promoted very heavily. Didn't sell that well, um, because of that. And so when Apple folded a couple of years later, like after all the you know court cases worked their way through and it finally closed, yeah. a huge amount of these albums were still like in their warehouses, and so they all got sent out in like 1976 or something. And just ended up at, in like discount bins where all of a sudden every record store had 30 copies of this album, which is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So we have, uh, oh, uh, I guess we didn't say at the beginning of the, or when I started talking and um, I'll just mention now, we're only going to go fully track by track through their, we're going to talk about th- their last three albums today. We're only going to go fully track by track through the final album uh, because we and the world have decided that these middle two ones are are not worth talking about. So Mm -hmm. anyway, so this album is called Ass. And the (laughs) album cover is very subtle. Uh, It's a donkey, an ass, uh, like following a carrot off in the distance, which was a bit of a cynical kind of poke at Apple by the band about them it's kind of like that political cartoon idea you had mentioned, PJ. So the donkey is labeled Badfinger. The apple is labeled Success with Apple. Uh, 
or the the carrot is labeled success carrot, with yeah. apple and then they're following it but even to their own death so peter i must say yeah. this album cover does something we questioned yeah if it could be done in the pet sounds episode um we asked ourselves if they had a horse in the studio and they put headphones on it, would they put it? <laughs> oh yeah, over there are. Ears? Yeah, the, the the donkey is wearing headphones. And then the answer I came up with was whatever looks funnier. Yeah, true. And this looks pretty funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the album cover is pretty. It's kind of cool. I like it. It's it's very weird. It reminds me a lot of Magic Christian music, which the album cover for that is yeah. like. It's just very kind of fantastical. It's a painting. And this one's also yeah. like like the carrot is like a giant carrot being held by a hand coming down from heaven in the sky. And like yeah, yeah. so it, it's painted by the same guy who did Tattoo You, uh, who won the Grammy for oh. that. Yeah, and then he also did yeah. Physical Graffiti and Some Girls. Yeah. So, yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah. So this ass, their final uh, Apple record was released in November 1973 in the U.S. and March 74 in the U.K. So once again, just weird months-long delays between the U.S. Mm -hmm. and U.K. releases for an Apple album. Uh, the single, Apple of My Eye, uh, which we should give maybe a quick listen to just to kind of get an idea of where the the oh, bad I'm finger sorry, are at. This went to number 102 away. in the U.S. The album only went to 122. You know the gift you have will always be This is a I think obviously Pete Ham song and written tune. Yeah, it's not very good. <clears throat> I think it's fine. It's just very it's not a great single, I don't think. I although in no, like bad single, I would say. In the early seventies I kinda get it, like slower kinda ballad y songs I think did a lot better. But yeah, I don't think it's a great single. I did give a listen to this album just to kind of check in. It's not great, but we could also listen to the song Blind Owl, written by Tom Evans, was a standout one, I think. Pretty. Is this about Alan Wilson? <laughs> I don't think so. Unfortunately. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. This was the one track on here that really seemed interesting. They should have let Pete Ham sing this. They should have let Pete Ham sing this and put it out as the single, man. Like, it fucking, yeah. it rips. It's cool shit. Yeah, my only problem is that vocal take is not. Yeah, although we can confirm, sounds like John Lennon without a vocal filter. Does, he still sounds does, like him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty solid. It's like good, yeah, kind of. Uh, the they do the the dual guitar thing, which they do off and on through the years, yeah. and really is nice here. It works for me. I like when yeah. they do it. Um, let's get to. We don't necessarily have to do our song, but uh, we do have a Rolling Stone review for this album. We can check in on what the what the world thought, what the critics thought of Ass. I'm gonna do this song. Okay. This little thing called like a Rolling Stone. 
All right. So the Rolling Stone review was released in December 73, so a little bit after the uh, album came out. Written by Bud Scopa. Not a name I recognize, but... All right. The album title is the band's reference to themselves as unwitting followers of some enticing but unrealizable dream. That dream may have been their expectations of their place in the Beatles' plans for Apple, or it may have just been the group's fantasy that by being in close proximity to the Beatles, they could somehow become them. In discarding that dream, they've discovered their own identity as a group, and that discovery gives this album its surprising forcefulness. Apple of My Eye, the single, is both a decisive... Uh, expression of dissatisfaction and a sentiment filled song about leaving an old lover behind interesting uh, this nicely sets up the album's ambivalent tone the product of a confrontation between aggression and sentiment this is surprisingly effective so they have unusually like muscular playing the album consists almost entirely of bracing rock and roll Chris Thomas is to be com- commended for his underscoring of Bad Fingers dynamic strengths sure um, Interesting. So, you know, Rolling Stone at the time, it seems like they would give like nothing albums like this. Yeah. Pretty good reviews. Like reviews that people like didn't care about. Yeah. I think they just gave to the guys who like really loved music. Yeah, and maybe. They, then they were like, it's a good album. But then, you know, like you look at a George Harrison album for, oh, no, that's a bad example. Like a, who did Rolling Stone hate? Zeppelin. You look at a Zeppelin album from this time and they fucking right. hate it. Well, it's because anything's it super popular. They didn't want to be that into it. But. Yeah. Uh, this is a surprisingly vibrant album from a group that has never managed to string its scattered hits into a distinguishable identity and which seemed to be headed for oblivion or dissolution, whichever came first. It would qualify as a comeback if it weren't so clearly an introduction to the band beneath the veneer. So Wow. Yeah, pretty good review. Uh, it's, I think... I don't know. I gave this and their next one just a cursory listen, like I said, and it's solid. I, I don't think it's great, like, but uh, I don't know. If you love Badfinger, you, you probably will find stuff to like on there. So hmm. let's see. So uh, during the delays for Ass, while they were trying to figure out all the publishing stuff, uh, they're leaving Apple. That's their final album on the contract. So yeah. Stan secures them a new contract with Warner Brothers Records. Um, and they were hesitant given all the rumors and stuff that have been surfacing about Stan Pauly, but went ahead with it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Bad idea, boys. That's everybody's mistake. Yeah. So last episode I made a mistake. So we were talking about the VP of Badfinger Enterprises I said was Stan Pauly, and you were asking who the president was, and I didn't know. I thought this was a misspelling. The VP is named Stan Poses. And Stan Pauly is the president. Is the president. But where I read that, I literally thought they just misspelled his last name or something because it was such a similar name. So It's similar to having two people named Mick in a band. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's like, how does that happen? And it almost makes it, if if we didn't, whatever I'm about to share will prove this isn't true, but it's almost like Stan Pauly just was like, I'll be the president. We don't really have a VP. What if I'm just the VP? Eh, Stan poses. (laughs) Yeah. Just put Stan Poses on the letterhead I'd be as VP. posing as somebody exactly. else. I wonder what the name was. So, be. but their VP Stan Poses apparently repeatedly told the band not to sign with Warner Brothers uh, for many reasons. First of all, I think they don't trust Stan. Yeah. Uh, Paulie, sorry, not Poses. And then also the contract for Warner Brothers had them releasing a new album every six months for three years, which is ridiculous. What the fuck? Yeah. 
fucking insane. That's a insane. lot of albums, especially for this time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it is a $3 million contract, which is good. It's not great, but for great a band their, I mean, yeah, their size or for their, like, their fame level, that's pretty damn good. Yeah. But that's a lot of music to be releasing. Um, right. So, so they went into the studio to start the Warner, their first Warner Brothers album just a few weeks after finishing Ass um, and before Ass had even come out. So they're kind of in a weird overlap here. Uh, the mm-hmm. first album for Warner Brothers was t- supposed to be called For Love or Money. And if you thought Ass and its uh, album cover were subtle, then calling your, <laughs> yeah. calling your first album uh, with a brand new gigantic contract with a major label For Love or Money is uh, also subtle. So yeah. they got Chris Thomas on board again to produce. Uh, the album was originally supposed to be released in December of 1973, but was delayed at the last minute because Al- Apple surprise released ass in the U.S. in late November. <laughs> so instead, they released it in February 1974. So for people who like are vaguely aware of Badfinger, they get two albums within four months, which is very weird. Um, very weird. And probably two very different sounding albums. Yeah. Well. Yes. Well... And then Warner Brothers does not like the title that they chose, so they just released the album as self-titled, which right. we talked about not liking that when bands do it, and I, especially when it's a later album. This one, I think, That's... doesn't definitely doesn't count, though, because the band submitted a title. Warner Brothers said, we don't like that title, but they just didn't come up with a new one, so they just released it as Badfinger on the cover. Like, they just yeah. didn't try. Well, it wasn't the bands, I, you know. I only don't like it when it's like the third or fourth album. Like, I don't yeah, care yeah. if they're. It should be if you release one and it's self-titled. That's the first album you're putting out. No. Yeah, it's not their fault though. So I get it. No. I get it. Um, so the self-titled Bad Finger came out in 1974, uh, February. The low. It's the lowest charting album by the band. It only went to number 161 in the U.S. Neither of their singles charted. They had, so we can listen to a couple off this. Love is Easy was a Joey Mullen track. It was released everywhere except the U.S. and failed to chart. And then they had a Pete Ham track released in the U.S. And that also, like I said, failed to chart. Right. So Love is Easy is the uh, global single outside the non-American single, I guess. They have a song on this album called Matted Spam. It's a really gross name. Pretty good song. I like Joey Mullins kind of got the thing of like, what if Keith Richards was a better singer voice? Like he's kind of got the thing where he like sounds like he has a frog in his throat or like can't quite hit some of those higher notes, but I like his voice. And this is fine. I don't know. Yeah, it's nothing bad. special, but it's nothing great. I could tell you exactly what year it was released <laughs> just by listening to it. Yeah, again, honestly, though, it does kind of sound like those like late 70s, early 80s Keith songs to me a little bit. Like This kind of sounds like it could be off uh, like Undercover. I, could, a, a I also bit. hear that, yeah, yeah. yeah. But those were recorded. All those albums were recorded so weird and produced really yeah. badly, so... Yeah, the Stones were, 
I could I definitely hear the Keith on there. Yeah. But the stones were weird because they were either way behind in like their production yeah. or like so far ahead. Yeah. But like inconsistently. Anyway. This is the song. And then I Miss You was yeah. the Pete Ham single that was released in the US. And the first song on the album. Mm-hmm. Another ballad Oof. single. A rough song to open it. Album. Uh, we talked about with straight up. I kind of like the. It, I feel like it takes some balls to open an album with a ballad. So I kind of like it sometimes. Like it does. Here's but the they thing. Did it once already. Ballad into rocker is way better than the first song being a rocker and the second song being a ballad. I agree with that. Two rockers though. Yeah, true. Up top, the strokes. Best. The best the strokes uh, approach they call it. Uh, this song's not bad. It's just once again a weird single to me. Like, were they trying to go for like kind yeah. of the easy listening charts or something? It's weird. It's very strange because it doesn't really get a tempo. It's interesting. Um, so the one that I pulled out that I thought was actually like a solid song that we could listen to is "Where Do We Go From Here." Ah, the George Harrison guitar. <laughs> yeah. George Harrison voice as well. <laughs> the George Harrison everything. This kind of sounds like a Tom Evans one, but I haven't read it down. Oh, well. This one's not bad. I mean, it's better than either of those other two that they released as singles. Right. It's, but also it's not. I mean, it wouldn't be a great, great single, but it's a good album track. Yeah, this album's very weird. They get really weird on this album. So like, "Matted Spam" is a pretty weird track. They have a straight up funk song on it, which is really weird, like with horns and like a James Brown beat. It's it's a weird oh, what album. What song is that? Uh, let me double check real quick. I'm pretty sure. Oh boy. Oh, it is Matted Spam. My bad. Matted Spam is the funk song. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah, Pete, this is the one. <laughs> Ooh, fuck it's, yeah, It's Pete. actually pretty groovy, yeah. Like, Pete Ham does a good kind of white soul guy voice. This would have been a good single. I genuinely believe. Yeah, you're probably right. This rules. Alright, I'm adding this to the playlist. I I added a couple of these to personal playlists that were solid. Oh yeah. 
Get it, Pete. Get it, Pete Ham. All right. All right. So after Badfinger, the album comes out. Uh, they yeah. do some touring in the U.S. and still do pretty well. Like they, they definitely still have a following, at least in the states, that will show up and support them. However, here's where we start to go a little bit off the rails with Stan. So Stan, when they signed their contract with Warner Brothers, as part of their advance whole situation, they were supposed to set up an escrow account that Stan was supposed to deposit an amount of money into. I found different numbers in a lot of different sources. So, And, and now, Pete, I know what an escrow account is, but will you tell the listeners in case you Sure, sure, sure. Look, as far as I understand it, it's basically an account where WB can access it, all the band members can access it, and Stan can access it, but there's supposed to be like a minimum amount of money in there uh, as they're advanced, mm. and then they're only allowed to like take money out at a certain time or a certain amount of money. So, And now, Pete, what is money? <laughs> so it's somewhere around a half million dollars. I found different exact numbers, like I said, in different places, but okay. somewhere around four to five to six hundred thousand dollars was supposed to be in this escrow account okay it's not there which means and stan was supposed to deposit it uh so Uh, i wonder where it went warner brothers sends stan several letters telling him to please deposit this money you're contractually obligated to deposit uh and he does not ever respond and he has gone completely as we would call it in the military away without leave (laughs) yeah so uh badfinger are also dealing with some interband turmoil at the moment uh so joey molland who's kind of increasingly a leader in the band like you know pete ham and tom evans did almost all the straight up songs he kind of comes up to a point where he's almost writing as many as pete ham and tom evans is is kind of like the third guy now um he his wife is being a little bit of a Yoko uh, starts showing up to band meetings, getting a lot more involved in like band decision makings and stuff. Um, I guess like another Beatle wife, an assistant said she kind of thought she wanted to be like Linda McCartney, like not only, yeah. you know, showing up to stuff, but also maybe in the band. Uh, hmm. Kathy was her name said later that she did not have any of those designs. She just was showing up because she was so worried about the band. They were clearly in such a bad place money-wise. She said that she was like, I have to help these guys. They aren't getting their shit figured out. Like, could not pay their rents and, like, could not afford new, you know, record players or a TV or whatever. Like, just did not have any money coming in. And it's like, you just signed a $3 million contract. So (laughs) I'm going to try and figure out what the fuck to do. So, interesting. Um, so, at this point, the band had been recording at uh, for their second WB album, the second one to come out within a year. Uh, so, they'd been recording at a place called Caribou Ranch in Nederland, Colorado, uh, which was Ooh. apparently a pretty well-known record uh, uh, recording studio. Uh, but it burned down in the, I think, late 80s or something. So I was, yeah, curious why I hadn't heard of that. And I actually forgot to look up. Are you anywhere near Nederland, Colorado? Nederland? I've never heard of it. I might be. Let's look up where, where the fuck Nederland is. Oh, it's over by Boulder. So no, oh, okay. I'm not anywhere near it. Well, that kind of makes sense, though. 
in the mountains Nederland and in the 70s that would have been rural i assume <laughs> yeah it would have been like it's an hour away from denver there's no one around <laughs> yeah um denver where's that so and then also they recorded other parts of it at george martin's studios in london nice um yeah so the album is released in november 1974 it is called wish you were here (laughs) and oh yeah and if that sounds familiar to you let's play a little game okay okay uh that i like to call how many things show up when you put wish you were here just that phrase alone into the wikipedia search bar how many topics show up before this wikipedia page and the answer is do you want to guess wait 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 (laughs) i want to guess because my guess is that there's wish you were here pink floyd wish you were here pink floyd lyrics wish you were here pink floyd chords Wish you were here. Album. Uh, we're Wikipedia search bar, not Google search bar. Wikipedia. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, because Google, I six. think it would be like four pages before it showed up. But yeah, six. I'm guessing there's six. I have no idea. Uh, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight items show up before Ooh. "Wish You Were Here" parentheses Badfinger album. So Yikes. the first Yikes. one. Just wish you were here. So I assume taking you to the page where it has all the links. The second one, wish you were here, Pink Floyd album. Third one, wish you were here, Pink Floyd song. Wish you were here, Avril Lavigne song. Oh, I'm not familiar. Wish you were here, 1987 film. Wish you were here, Rednecks song. Uh, Never heard of this band, but it's spelled R-E-D-N-E-X. No, they did Cotton Eye Joe. You've heard them. There we go. And then wish you were here, Incubus song. And then Wish You Were oh, Here, that's a cover. musical. And then Wish You Were Here, Badfinger <laughs> album. There is one Wish You Were Here underneath uh, that, a Delta Good Rim song, whatever that is. I know the Incubus one, I think, is a cover of Pink Floyd. Oh, there so you go. That, you know. So, Maybe I'm wrong. I don't pretty know. incredible. Um, so Wish You Were Here was released in November 74. I think I already said that. There was not a single released from this album. <laughs> so the album went to number 148 in the u.s and we're gonna cover a little bit about the album's release before we talk before we go track by track because the album only went to number 148 in the u.s and it was only on sale for about six weeks because they put the album out all the advanced reviews by the way were really good hinting at like a, you know, upturn uh, for the band. It was kind of a comeback record. Uh, We'll get to the Rolling Stone review in a minute, but there was like a lot of good hype for it. Uh, No single, crazily, like I said. Yeah. After about six weeks of the album being out, WB decides Stan's never giving us this money back. We're just going to sever the band's contract. And as part of that, we'll pull the album from the shelves. So the album wow. almost immediately disappears being for sale and it uh, for reasons we'll you know we'll get into the rest of their career here but it will not be on sale again for several years. So this the original mm. LP of Wish You Were Here is like a very rare record to get. I bet, yeah. Cuz it it didn't was even sell that well when it was for sale. So Yeah. Was this one of the things where WB uh went and dug a giant hole in the desert and burned it? I assume and so. Buried yeah. it. Yeah. I assume so. So do you want to let's let's actually let's take a quick break 
and then come back Let's and, take a and, break before and do we our get track into, by track yeah. for Wish You Were Here. Let's take a quick break. Oh, nice tries. Seven Club. Uh, in the break, I looked up so our listeners know. Um, according to Discogs, which is usually pretty good, Badfinger Accurate. was released yeah. in 1974, or Wish You Were Here was released in 1974 on LP and 8-track. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> after the album was pulled, <laughs> no, no versions were released again until 1991 when the CD version came out on Warner Brothers Records, so... This was an album you could not find for about 17 years there, crazily. Which is very funny. Yeah, pretty wild. Um, so, yeah, so Wish You Were Here, I think I said, yeah, it charted barely, went to number 148 in the U.S. Um, the band has some guest musicians for the first time in a while they have the horn section from the average white band on tracks one. Oh wow yeah on tracks one you and know, nine so we'll kind of point those out when we get there i have been wanting to compare this band to the average white band <laughs> not in musicality by any means but like i don't know i feel like i've heard about them the same amount mm. and i've heard about the same amount of their music yeah yeah similar eras you know, yeah so, so. Yeah. So yeah, our first people, I think, since they had you know George Harrison and Leon Russell and stuff on Straight Up. So, right. Yeah. Kind of a downgrade, but. <laughs> uh, so let's do our Rolling Stone review of "Wish You Were Here." This little thing called like a Rolling Stone. All right. All right. So this was released uh, November six, nineteen seventy-five. Written by Ben Edmonds. Let's see. Uh, without Pink Floyd, we would not have the European sci-fi multitudes to kick around. They were the first to explore the upper reaches of the chemical heavens and their commercial and artistic superiority, if ever it was in doubt, was brutally confirmed by Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, oh, shit. Oh. I got the wrong wish you were here. God damn it. Damn. In a very funny uh, thing that I now have to share, at least with PJ, um, this is the weirdest fucking I've never read any of their Pink Floyd reviews, but they are they it's a positive review, but they're like really down on Pink Floyd. There's several paragraphs huh. describing how none of them are good musicians, but they just like combine together into being like a more than a sum of its parts band. And I I don't think that's true yeah, at all. I think of all four of them as being in like the top ten maybe at their instrument. Like they're all really very, incredibly very good. talented, especially musicians. David Gilmour, yeah. Rick Wright, and Roger Waters. At least, at least those three yeah. are in the top ten at their instrument, for sure. 
but wow, they're very much crazy. like they're proficient at their instruments and that's and that's where it peaks or something is one of the quotes pretty wild that's crazy that yeah wow that's pretty funny and also just to give you an idea of how no one gives a shit about Badfinger. The last two Rolling Stone reviews. So first of all, Rolling Stone, at least that I could find, never even reviewed the first Warner Brothers album. And the last, right. the Ass and Wish You Were Here reviews, I could not even find on Rolling Stone's website anymore. Usually you can find them there. This was like yeah. it had to be a weird, different, you know, Badfinger blog that compiled a bunch of stuff. So <laughs> anyway, so the Wish You Were Here came out in November 1974. That makes more sense. Written again by Bud Scopa, so we at least get some consistency here. Yeah, there you go. Up to now, the big singles, Come and Get It, No Matter What, and especially Baby Blue, have provided the obvious high points along the way for this veteran English quartet. Now at last, they've made an album, their sixth in five years, that derives a general style from what the band constructed on those singles. Captivating melodies, melancholy vocals, and big bell-like rhythm guitars outline a stirring, full-bodied sound. While the final Apple album contained the energy without the melodies, and the first Warner LP had pretty but punchless tracks, Wish You Were Here is loaded with songs that are both catchy and electric. Strategically placed horns by the average white band sax duo, and strings enlarge the guitars to symphonic proportions. Most immediately striking are Pete Ham's No One Knows and Just a Chance. After six albums, Ham's McCartneyisms are now fully integrated into a distinct style that is more conventional uh, lyrically more conventional, but melodically as attractive as his progenitors. It's hard to recall a single resonant lyrical phrase from any Badfinger song, and these new ham songs are as anonymous as any in terms of language, but melody and sentiment are awe-inspiring. Uh, Joey Molland has become Badfinger's most consistent writer and rocker, as he shows on each of his right. four tracks here. Uh, Badfinger has been in the shadow of the Beatles so completely and for so long that the idea of the group as an autonomous unit takes some getting used to. But, lyrical slightness aside, they've always been a joy to listen to for their compositional and arranging invention and for their vocal attractiveness. Wish You Were Here, their most fully formed album, makes it clear that Badfinger, despite having never having won a substantial audience, have lost none of their unity or determination, and they're still one of the best singles bands in the business, even though there's not a single from this album. So, thanks, bud. <laughs> so, yeah, a very good review, and it got other good reviews, and, like, this has always been, you know, kind of the forgotten... Uh, the whole band is, like, a forgotten band a little bit, but this is definitely the, like, forgotten yeah. classic album. So that's why we decided to go track by track for sure. And we can start uh, with Just a Chance. A uh, Pete Ham tune. So, like... This album is really interesting because I feel like it it has some commonality with Straight Up, but if you went, we made a joke when we were talking about Straight Up that they'd released basically three different albums that sounded like they were recorded by three different bands. Yeah. I kind of see the connection between this and Straight Up, but it kind of just feels like it's a fourth band. It, they sound very much like early Ario Speedwagon to me on this album. Oh, like yeah. a lot, yeah. And late Ario Speed, they just sound like Ario Speedwagon a little bit. Yeah. Well, I've seen in concert twice. There you go. Um, yeah. 
Like they're definitely doing I love that. Those guitars, though. I mean, it's the same kind of idea. They're doing the power pop thing, yeah. but this one, it's a lot more full. It's yeah. it's recorded like it sounds like they're in a big room recording it. Um, yeah. And yeah, it it really just sounds like they are recording to like go play in a giant arena and stuff, uh, which they've done here and there on their older albums, but yeah. not as like it feels like that's the production focus here. Yeah. This song is great though. Uh, very, I love song. how nice and upbeat it is. Like Ham does not sound very McCartney to me. He's doing again like much more of just kind of this like '70s pop rock thing. Yeah. And especially with that guitar solo and I don't know. Yeah. In my mind, Pete Ham's got—he's uh, got his McCartney voice, and he's got no, his no matter what voice. Yeah, which does is not very McCartney to me. He's doing his no matter what voice here. Yeah, you know, I think a little bit of the Ariel Speedwagon thing for me too is they've got the keyboard going on, but it's like not like they've done a lot of organ in the past or piano, but instead yeah. they have the more kind of synthesizer-y sounding keyboard just playing chords in the back, and that is very much like that kind of later 70s, early 80s arena rock sound. And then these woos with the ride cymbal and like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, it's like a, a arena rock rather than pop rock, and I can't even describe it. I, but I think the arena rock comes in with, so the drums are really booming, yeah. so like a big room thing, but then the fact that like at the end of every like line on the verses and the entire chorus, it's like group vocals mm. that are not harmonies. Yeah, and it might just be Pete Ham double tracked, but yeah, or triple tracked or whatever. But yeah, but that might be pretty part of it. funky start. Like it's uh, once again, yeah, yeah it's like a, a, a new a new kind of band or a new sound. But let me get to your so this fine. Song. This was written by Mike Gibbons, but I think Pete Ham's singing it. Yeah, it's an X. Two people are singing it. Yeah. Uh, strange choice for track two. Like yeah. This, uh, is this a Stones album? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it's a really great song. This is one of the better it's songs on the song. album, I think, for yeah. sure. Um, and again, it actually, it does kind of the thing we talked about on their older ones, where it's it feels to me, again, like kind of that early, mid-60s, poppy, jangly, Beatles-esque thing. But this one yeah. definitely sounds to me like they made it their own. And like this sounds like yeah. a 70s band writing just that type of song, but not trying to rewrite Beatles songs, you know? I would agree with that. Like they finally, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, get into their own. Like it, thing, it sounds know. more influenced as opposed to yeah. just a straight across, you know, exactly. ripoff. And I really love, I need to check who sings lead on this because I really like the vocal tape. And then we have a that doesn't great sound like Pete Ham to me. It doesn't. But we have a great slide solo as well on this song. And those sixpence none the wiser yeah. uh, strings, I guess. Yeah, this rules. Yeah, Pete Ham plays a couple great slide solos on this album that are really fantastic. A band you would not expect to have like a great slide. No, well, and he doesn't break but it out that often. He breaks it out like once yeah. per album, and you kind of forget. And it's always he plays good though. It. Yeah. Um. Also, this song is spelled wrong. 
And the misspelling of your yeah. is on the actual vinyl, as far as I can tell. It's Y-O-U-R yeah. instead of Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. And it was freaking me out because on Spotify it was spelled wrong. And then, yeah. but then on Wikipedia, I think the person had spelled it correctly. So I was trying to figure out what the fuck was happening, but it was spelled wrong on the vinyl, and I don't know. And you would think if they were doing it on purpose, like spelling it wrong, they would have gone like Y E R. Yeah, yeah, they would have done something, not just picking the grammatically wrong your. Yeah, maybe they were just dumb. Yeah, well, and then it makes it just seem like a mistake. But then if it was a mistake, then why wouldn't it be fixed on? What's the joke there? You know, if it was a pun or something. But yeah, this song is really just fantastically catchy. I love the like upbeat acousticness. Yeah. You gotta get out of here, a Joey Mullen track. So this is a song that every time I listen to it, I think, oh, so it'll start like this, and then it'll kick in. It never kicks in. It's like three minutes of this. <laughs> And uh, this really is a Stones album, man. Leading one rocker and then two slow songs in a row. Yeah. Yeah, this one. I want to like this song. This reminds me. It's like there's something to it that it like grips you, but then there's no payoff. Yeah, like like there's some catchiness in the melody, but you're right. Like it never goes anywhere. The song never kind of rises into anything else. Um. I feel like this is a song that could work as like the slow, the one slow song on like the B side of a really great album. If this was just kind of like yeah. a little palate cleanser in between songs, but as the third track on what's a good, but I think kind of hit or miss album, it's it, it does not stand on its own quite. Yeah. I hate his voice on it too. Yeah, he has a weird vocal filter, like we were talking about. But. Like, and I like this part. It's it's all good. It just feels like it should kick into something, especially since yes. we haven't gotten to any yet. But there are three separate songs on here that are, like, two-part songs. And this feels like it absolutely should have been a candidate to have a, like, second part on it where it, you know, kicks in and starts rocking at some point. But, yeah. Huh. We can probably move on. The organ's nice. Organ? Very nice. Oh, this is No One Knows, a Pete Ham song. Oh, and this one also, this is more of a pun or whatever, because it's no, K-N-O-W, no one knows. Yeah. No one knows it, no one knows it, no one knows it. And here we get his Paul McCartney's songwriting style. Yeah. But different voice. Yeah, true, true. This is his third But it definitely, voice, this really is... sounds like a Paul McCartney song. When his voice gets low, it sounds like Paul for sure. Yeah. This is exactly his range where he doesn't sound like Paul, so when he's doing those lower ones, you can hear it. You know, like when he's either going low or going high, he definitely sounds like he's trying to Paul thing. But this range works for him where it's... Yeah. This, this song is fine. It's not a bad song. I, I, I actually really don't like the production. Like, the big, full, orchestrated arena sound sounds just weird with, like, yeah. a mid-tempo song. I don't know. 
the bells and yeah. stuff on it and the booming drums just like, don't work. I just think it's incredibly repetitive, yeah. and like the production certainly doesn't help it out. Yeah. The bells, I hate. It makes me think it's a fucking Christmas song. Like it reminds me of <laughs> multiple like '70s Christmas songs, but or it's I don't even know if it's bells, but like the guitar is very. Yeah, it's giving me that vibe for sure. I don't like that drum fill either. That no. I think let's at least hear the guitar solo. I think it's solid, but we'll see. Oh, they have the double track guitars. Yeah, but produced in a very. Oh yeah, and then they have this lady speaking Japanese or something. It's so weird. It feels like a song that would be a, a few songs on this album kind of sound like they're from a musical. This absolutely sounds like it's maybe from like a musical or something, but in a way that doesn't make or sense. Or specifically this. for a movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. The soundtrack song. This also sounds like it was from fucking 1984. Yeah, the production is kind of ahead of its time on a lot of this. It's it's weird. So anyway, let's get to Dennis. A song I'm pretty sure written for his girlfriend's son, by the way. I'm gonna pretend it's about Dennis Wilson. It's Dennis is just a hilarious name to both name a song and then when it gets into the lyrics, just I don't know. It's like calling someone Todd. Dennis is just a funny name. So this is our first of the of multiple multi-part songs that we're gonna have on the back half of this album. So the, the the finger boys learned what prog rock was, I guess, in the year between yeah. the six months between <laughs> their second album and this one. Especially like this is very like we heard yeah Pink Sticks. Floyd right or Sticks yeah yeah, yeah. we heard an album yeah. by uh... <laughs> this song it's tough it's I think it's like six minutes long. I really don't like the beginning, but I love the end, so I'm gonna make us listen to a lot of this, unfortunately. You want me to skip to the end? Maybe, oh, it's only like 5.16. Let's go like 2.30 and just see where we're at. It's getting going now. Yeah. Yeah, here we go. And then we got some doo-wops in the background, and then it just turns into like a very orchestrated, over-the-top kind of '50s rock song. It's and it's. I, I agree. Love I love the end of this song, yeah. but the beginning is really meh. Um, well, and they do. If it was only like 30 seconds of that at the beginning, yeah. And then this, yeah. And I love this little middle eight kind of thing here. Like this, yeah. It, That's very McCartney. Yes. It gets really great here, and then we get another little change when we get a new melody. In the breakdown. sound but like you can tell in the writing and kind of like the yeah. production a little bit the approach yeah, yeah. Approach. so great word 
yeah, this one's this one's an annoying one because yeah, like I said, like that whole first two and a half minutes, I I don't love anything that's happening, but once it gets going, yeah. it's pretty great. But. So that ends the A side. Let's get to first track on the B side. In the meantime, slash some other time, written by I don't know why they had to choose two song titles that were almost the same yeah. song title. Um, written by Mike Gibbons and Joey Molland, and this is our second multi-part song, as you could guess based off the title. They could have just called it Some Other Meantime. They, they could have done a lot here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Good point. Or they could have just called it one of those things. I don't really get it. But yeah. um, at least to me, this song also starts pretty slow, but it gets very, very good in, in the second section. So... Yeah, it is such a power pop song. They just, yeah, like they discovered that you could write. Were they the predecessor of like arena rock? It really, I mean, maybe I just don't listen to a lot of like older stuff, like older sticks and and stuff like that. But it sounds so much to me like they were, um, like, like that they're writing for like a, a rock musical. Yeah, like it very much sounds like, yeah, this is. What year was this? 74. Which early, early for that. Yeah, I feel like this part's fine. Some of the stuff is fine, but I hate the stomping like breaks all the time. I don't know. It's yeah. not that cool. So with this one though, how long was this one? This one's about seven minutes. Let's go like four minutes in, or three and a half maybe. I should have written down on these where they change. About three and a half minutes okay. ago. Because once it changes over to some other time. about this it, it is power pop so it's reminiscent of all of those bands we've mentioned plus like the cars or cheap trip sure, you know sure. but those people were all at their the beginning of their careers in like 73 yeah, and yeah. this is like towards the end of bad Fingers. right they've been around for what at least 10 years yeah. at this i mean point. they started out making like monkeys music and now they're doing that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. So I just really love this melody, I think, in some other time. And the guitar line is really cool, too. So. All right. Uh, Let's get to Love Time, another Joey Mullen song.
I, I think this song is fine, but this is absolutely the spot on the album for the slow song. <laughs> Not yeah. track three or yeah, wherever Got to Get Out of Here yeah. is his other slow song. Yeah. yeah, like you said, this song isn't bad, but... It's kind of just a shrug. A little, a little boring. Yeah. yeah. It's not anything to write home about. Once again, I like. I really, really like Joey Mullen's voice, but... Yeah, this song's very, like... It, it, it's really just, like, bland, kind of AM, 70s rock sound to me. Like, this could yeah. be written by any guy with a piano yeah. in 1974. <laughs> That's true. It's, I it's see his voice is good on the slower ones. If it gets mid tempo or upbeat, yeah. I just don't really love his voice. But more um, double track guitars. But so yeah. King of the Load for some reason, not Road, but King of the Load. Uh, this is a Tom Evans song. Again, a weird thing on the vinyl that all these title tracks are so weird or track titles. On the yeah. vinyl, it says King of the Load parentheses T. End parentheses. I have no idea why it's called King of the Load T. <laughs> um, what? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. I want to like this song, but it's again just kind of too bland. Or like it's I hate play. those electric keyboard tones too. I kind of like it on this one. I don't know why. It's just like I could plug in my MIDI keyboard and get those off a of fucking garage band or something. I really like the melody for this, and I like... Maybe it is the keyboard or something. Like, maybe with some different instruments, I would like this song a lot more. Because I like almost everything about it, but I just always kind of forget it every time I listen to this album. And then go, oh yeah, this one's pretty good. And then forget about it the instant it's over, so... I didn't like this one, like, at all. Let's go ahead and get to the last multi-part epic. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, slash, should I smoke? What uh, the fuck is this album? I know. Like, it was written by Jesus. Pete Ham and Joey Molland. Uh, so this, meanwhile, back at the ranch, is fucking fantastic. I really love, like, Pete Ham is in his bag writing super catchy. Like, he's so good at the, like, mid to up-tempo rocker. Like, this one is very mid-tempo, but it's got such a nice groove to it. It's kind of like Baby Blue or something off Straight Up, where they have this really nice kind of driving mid-tempo groove to it, where it's really fantastic. And I love the uh, all of the melodies on it. I don't know if it's because it's the last song on the album, and an album that I, like, honestly didn't like very much. I just couldn't get into oh, it. Man. There's nothing for me on it. It's interesting. This is the song that got me into this album. It, I gave this a couple listens without anything grabbing me. And then this grabbed me like my second listen through. And then it started to pull together for me as an album after this. So, Well, I hate to spoil the ending, but I don't think anything grabbed me. <laughs> uh, here's our next slide section. This is better than a lot of the songs on the album, but I, like, to me it seemed like, I don't know, a chore to listen to by this, like, by the end of it. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so, 
This is Meanwhile Back at the Ranch, also just an incredible title for a song. I, for all of the nonsense titles on this album, Meanwhile Back at the Ranch is worth, worth it all. Uh, I will say, we'll kind of let it go maybe while we talk about it. When it gets to Should I Smoke at the end, it, it gets pretty boring. So They do a really yeah. good job on all their multi-part songs of having one very boring section and one really good section that's, part that's pretty but good, like the yeah. section that's good is so good it makes it worth listening to all like seven minutes of the song but it's rough to like listen to the boring Does section it? so yeah i yeah this song is like a pure shot of uh sugar candy to my veins man it's fantastic um here we get to should i smoke and then we can I like this part better. Than yeah, like it's kind of interesting. It's the first double part song they've done where it doesn't change the instrumental at all. Like they just ride yeah. this little groove and then just change the melody and it like, yeah, it's interesting. And even here, it's like very similar to the slower part in Meanwhile Back at the Ranch, but it's just a different yeah. melody. So, Well, PJ, why don't you... Uh, why don't you go ahead and, and share your thoughts on Wish You Were Here? It wasn't egregiously bad at any point. <laughs> yeah. But it also wasn't really good at any point. Yeah. This is a very, very middle-of-the-road album, which sometimes is worse than a bad album. Yeah. You know? Like, nothing grabbed me at all. I think it's got a few good tunes on it. Um, yeah. I think total I liked maybe two and a half of the songs. Uh, and then the rest of them, I didn't think were like awful. Yeah. But I didn't like them. Yeah. I don't know. This is not it's the like forgotten Badfinger classic to you. <laughs> not at all. To me, it's yeah, yeah an album from a failing band. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, uh, it is interesting. Some of the tones and stuff on it that are so. I don't want to say pioneering of like the power pop genre, but you know, that might be the case. I don't know enough to know, yeah. to, you know, speak on that, but this is like a very early eighties album for being the early seventies. Yes. Yeah, it definitely feels ahead of its time in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was fine. Wasn't good. Yeah. Wasn't terrible. I have a weird feeling we might, give it a very similar rating but coming from yeah. very different places because okay. i thought wish you were here was fantastic but like in that it has some incredibly high highs and some pretty low lows <laughs> so like the songs that i love on it are as good i think or i at least enjoy as much as as all the best stuff off no dice and straight up but the boring songs are much more boring than like the kind of shrug songs on straight up or, or even no dice. So, and the, the production is weird. Mm. It's, I like it, but it, it does not make me feel like I'm listening to the same band for some reason, even though those first three albums that we talked about in the last couple of episodes are wildly different. I don't know why I still kind of get that like, oh yeah, I'm still listening to Badfinger though. And I'm like, I can picture these guys playing this still in my head. This one really kind of just sounds like a new band to me a little bit. Um, even though it's the same, the same that, four yeah. people. 
and I don't know why that bothers. It shouldn't bother me, but it, it kind of, I don't know, like gives it a weird, yeah, a weird place in my head. But basically here, I think we got like four fantastic songs and then just a couple fine ones and a, and a couple pretty, pretty bad ones. But yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I get, I think I get why some people would say this is the best Badfinger album just because oh, I don't. like I could see coming into it, enjoying this. I mean, look, they have out of the four we've listened to, you can take your pick cause you can like four different genres of music and be into them. Like you can be into some bad things. <laughs> so point. I could yeah. see a person who's less into their other stuff, liking this one the best. Um, yeah, for sure. But I, I, I think it is good. I don't think it's like that great. And it's also a little bit surprising to me. I didn't give, you know, a super careful listen to ass or the self-titled album, but it's a little weird to me that this one was supposed to be like the comeback one. Cause it's not, it's better, but not by like significantly. So it's it's better, but but just I would say, than those other ones. I like so. that song, mint or mush, matted spam, spam, whatever the fuck it was. Yeah, matted spam better than any song I like. Yeah, like I album. think if you like this and you like straight up, like you sure for sure will at least like some of ass and badfinger. Like they aren't just garbage albums. Yeah. They just were promoted really badly and they're hit or miss like all of badfinger stuff. So yeah. <laughs> You know, <laughs> nothing new. Yeah. yeah. So what are you thinking for rating for wish you were here, PJ? <sighs> mm. Why don't you go first on this one, Pete? Let's yeah. say at the same time. I'm oh, curious. Okay. The same okay. Thing. Well, I'm waffling. I'm really, really waffling. I am too. Oh, okay. Uh, three, three two, two, one, one a four six out of or a seven. Oh, oh okay. okay. <laughs> We're further apart than I thought. Yeah. I kind of thought we were going to maybe meet at like a six, but you Not liked it less than less than that. I was I was thinking between a four and a five because a five, yeah. I mean, is a middling album. And that is exactly what this yeah. is in my mind. It's not good. It's not bad. It's yeah. in the middle. But then since it was quite the listen and they've got two six-minute songs on it, that's why it went down, I think, in my book. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's very fair, to be honest. So uh, so four for you. I think I'm going to go the opposite and take my rating up one more point than I was thinking. Just Interesting. I got to say, like, I, here's, here's the thing. With Ass and Badfinger, I gave those a listen, liked, did not love a lot of it, but it was like, easy enough to just pull a couple songs I liked off and put them on a playlist. Except for You're So Fine, all these songs are like these really long, multi-part, you know, fucking like musical-ass sounding songs Yeah, that I'm not going to just like throw on an album and listen to for fun. So I kind of think I will listen to this full album a little bit more. And I do think it works as a full album, even if I don't love all of it. That, so, that is a good point. I think that's kind of where I'm going like, seven. I like I, I think the stuff that works works best in the context to of the fair, album. To be fair, you said so in that way. You I say that, like but then you also made fun of them putting the songs that they put second and third. You made fun of them yeah, for but doing that. Just so. like No Dice, we talked about this with No Dice. There's nothing to replace them. They don't yeah. have other songs. Like, 
maybe they had other songs in the bag which to me is the mark of a not great album so you can't really you can't really reorder these you know just because well no one knows is pretty boring and then like love time is another ballad which i mean i don't like the way they put it already and i can't reorder it that to me is a red flag here's here's the deal here's what they should have done with this album and what i think I don't even know if I would have rated it higher, but I think I would have appreciated it more. They should have just gone all out in terms of being kind of a concept out. Like they should have done the first side, like five just songs. And then the second side should have just been like three big multi-part songs. I feel like, like they right. just should have really gone for it. I, but yeah, whatever. I think that maybe would have been better. It would have been, I think more interesting because they could have cut a couple of the yeah. more boring songs here or mash them together into like a multi-part kind of thing. And just like, Again, yeah. just go for it. Pull man. a smiley so. smile. Anyway, so that's the album that was, if you didn't get it in those first few weeks in 1974, you weren't going to get it. never got it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I guess just in terms of it being like their kind of underground classic, like I think it's good enough that I get the idea of being like, oh, this band's so cool and this is their lost forgotten album that you can't ever find. And, like, it's good enough that I can see it kind of getting that shine around it. Of yeah. Being like, well, I mean, I'm yeah. not the most cynical man in the world. I, I understand if you like this music, I yeah, yeah. it's this sure. whole big thing. But I just didn't love it. So so now that we're getting into Pete Ham's death. It's it pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. So just a heads up for people. We uh, just want you to know this is, you know, it's no, no death is fun. <laughs> Yeah, but, but this, this one, one is, is yeah particularly gruesome. Yeah, um, it's not so great. if you are not one to listen to that kind of thing, maybe don't. Just a yeah, just a heads up for our listeners yeah. out there. So after the record comes out, the band starts preparing for a UK tour, and Pete Ham quits. Ah, nice. Yes, his quote: "I don't want Kathy managing the band." Oh, <laughs> so. Yeah, he's very fed up with all that situation we talked about before, the track by track. Uh, they immediately hire another song, singer and song... and ugh, Jesus Christ, not songwriter. They immediately hire another singer and keyboard player named Bob Jackson. Cool name. Uh, yeah, but Ham comes back pretty quick when WB makes it clear they will not promote the band if Ham's not in it. Wow, okay. So, yeah. Uh, but they keep this other guy in the band, and he'll be... Uh, kind of uh, part of bad finger until now really um like his name will come up later i guess is what i'm saying so they do their uk tour after that tour joey molland quits so i guess they got sick of kathy and him or yeah whatever um so stan so now they're still a four piece or they're a four piece again but with this bob jackson guy playing keyboards and you think that was awkward for pete ham coming back and being like you're the guy that's gonna replace me eh (laughs) And then, I mean, yeah, I don't know, man. Who the fuck knows? I think they all like it. Like, we'll get to it later. But they all seem to be friends. He seems to be the one guy they're all kind of friends with. Okay, so, like, like a real Paul. They split up later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Stan rushes the band back into the studio, and they throw together some tracks for their next album. Um, more like a ring. continuing their their run of subtlety. The songs include "Hey, Mister Manager" and "Rock and Roll Contract." <laughs> Wow. Which yeah. sound like Spinal Tap songs, they do. to be honest. That's incredible. So yeah. they submit this album. Uh, it's called, 
I forget what it's called, but it, it was eventually released. Um, but they submit this album, but Warner Brothers rejects it uh, because they have all these ongoing legal issues with Stan Pauly, all these ongoing court things. Um, they're also clued in, the Warner Brothers is clued into this ploy by Pauly. He was trying to just get the band the advance for the next album, mm. like super quickly. And so they clued into that. And so they reject the album. It's eventually released in like the 2000s, I think. Um, and obviously we're not going to listen to it, but a lot of people really like it. So Was it Head First? Like that that... Yes, Head First. That's what it's called. Thank you. So uh, by the early weeks of 1975, the band are dead in the water. The most recent album Just at the like end of 74 Brian was pulled from Jones shelves. and yeah, Dennis Wilson. Yeah. Their most recent album was pulled from record store shelves and their record company refused to let them put out their next one. (laughs) Um, In March, their salary checks don't clear and they don't receive checks in April. Wow. Yeah. So they are starting to panic. Yeah, of course. Especially Pete Ham, whose girlfriend at the time is pregnant with their child and he had just bought a house that he has mortgage payments on. Yikes. So they try to book their own shows in England and kind of try and get, you know, their own shit together without Stan around, which by the way, at this point, they had not heard from Stan for like months after the most recent album was rejected. They, they cannot get a hold of Stan and don't know where he is or what he's doing. Their huh. manager yeah, and the president of the company named after them. Damn. So, Hey, that sounds familiar. Book- <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So they book their own shows in England, or they try, but they're turned down everywhere because their contracts with Polly are like just really awful. Like no booker wants to sign their con- their booking contract, yeah. and everyone at this point is kind of starting to learn about these legal issues with Warner Brothers and all these problems with the band. So and they're no one wants to touch Badfinger anymore. They are literally a Badfinger. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Mike Gibbons uh, remembers during these months uh, that Pete really seemed like he was struggling uh, and feeling depressed and, you know, some mental illness showing. He apparently specifically noticed him burning himself with cigarettes on the arm a lot and just Hmm. showing other signs of, like, depression and anxiety and and all that. So Uh, in late April, Pete Ham learns he's officially broke. So he calls Tom Evans and they head to a bar. Pete has 10 whiskeys that night yeah. and tells Tom, I know what I'm going to do uh, before being driven home and hanging himself in his garage that morning. Yikes. Uh, April 24th, 1975. A real Bradley Cooper situation. Extremely, extremely depressing and maybe hard for some people to listen to. Um, so he hanged himself in his garage. He left a suicide note, uh, of which you can find in full online, which is weird, like photos of it, Oof. which is odd to me. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's yeah. pretty sad. He writes it to his girlfriend and, you know, unborn kid. And it's basically him saying, like, I I just can't do this anymore. Um, and says something along the lines of, like, I, I can't continue trusting people, yeah. so I'm just going to end it. Yikes. Uh, and his P.S., this I will quote, Stan Pauly is a soulless bastard. I will take him with me. Oh. How cool would it feel to have, no matter what you've done or who you are, to have your full name in someone's fucking suicide note? Yeah. 
Damn. as their reason for ending it. Like, just Jesus Christ, man. But then do you know when Stan Pauly died? Yeah. 2009. Yep. A month within Alan Klein's death. Those yeah. two bastards outlived <laughs> yeah. many of the bands they fucked over, which sucks. Yep. Yeah, I think the only Badfinger member who's still alive at this point is the Bob Jackson guy. Because I yeah. think I was reading something about like Pete Ham got a memorial plaque in the UK. They do these, you know, whatever, like famous yeah, person the, or the, famous place plaques. It looks like a record thing. Right. Yeah. So he got a memorial plaque in Swansea where he was born. And I think Bob Jackson and his daughter, the unborn daughter here, were like the two people who were there. Yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah. So in May, uh, after Pete died, Warner Brothers terminated the contract with the band and they broke up. So they are officially non-existent. Yeah. Huh. So years later, so the band really doesn't do anything. In the late 70s, I think Tom Evans and Joey Mullen do a record together. And then they kind of start infighting and they end up both touring separately as like different versions of Badfinger. Um, and have a lot of fights about like where all the royalty checks come from. And because like, a bunch of uh, all of their biggest hits were from when Joey Mullen did not have a publishing contract with Apple. Yeah. But he was a member of the band. So like Tom Evans at this point is the only guy getting all those checks from their Apple hits and Joey Mullen's like, but I'm in the band. I should be getting that money. Yeah. But he never signed any contracts to be getting that money. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean like just to give you an idea of how much, how just gone the band was, um, so like Mike Given, so they all played music for a little bit, but they all also were by 1977 were pretty much all out of the music business. Like uh, Joey Molland installed carpeting for a while. Oh. Tom Evans uh, drove a taxi for a while. Like it's just all bummer, sad. And Alan yeah. or not Alan Klein, Stan Pauly. I bet he was fucking living it up. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1983, yeah, in 1983, Tom and Joey Molland had a huge fight about the royalties from Without You, which was a song written by Tom and Pete Ham. Um, but like I said, Molland was a band member, but he just wasn't getting any royalty checks. They got into a huge fight about it. And in 1983, Tom Evans also hanged himself in his garage. Wow. So Stan Pauly got, got to. To it? Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, that's Badfinger. That's the story of Badfinger. And then they went on to become that band you've never heard of, but some asshole at a party will insist you should love. <laughs> Is that you? So, yeah, yeah. exactly. So wow. we are at the end of our yeah, at the end of our story of Pete Ham. Uh the uh, maybe the the least well known member of the twenty seven club we have talked about so far. Oh, the, I would definitely say yeah. the least famous that we've talked about so club. far for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like Canned Heat are up there, but I would I would have to guess more people on the street would know Canned Heat than would know Badfinger. So Yeah. Just it, based purely <sighs> on their most popular yeah. songs. Like no matter what, and Baby Blue versus, um, going up going the country, country, and uh, I feel like, yeah, on the road again, yeah, those would be. I would have to I, agree. I, yeah. I would think those would be more well known. So, huh? Yeah. Wow. 
That's crazy that two members of the band hung <laughs> themselves because of this motherfucker. Not I know. Not Pete Ham, but Stan Pauly. Yeah, I know. It's I can't it, believe that they a, got yeah. on the fucking Alan Klein train, somehow got off of it, and then yes, and just got on the caboose of the Alan, Alan Klein, Klein like another car train. on the same yeah. train. Yeah, fuck, <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, pretty miserable. One of the like, you know, mo- most well known, I would say, like band flameout stories in rock. Yeah, um, just. Yeah, because none of it was even, it wasn't even like they had a huge album and then just like stuff didn't feel to chart. Like they just really got royally fucked over at almost every turn. Like they they could never catch a break. They were always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Damn. Even though they were like very talented and you could see a world in which they were one of the bigger bands of the early 70s. But yeah. Yeah. So what do we want to rate Pete Ham out of 27? Oh. In twenty, in terms of twenty-seven ness, to give some context, other lesser-known members, Alan Wilson got an eleven out of twenty-seven, and Pigpen McKernan got a five out of twenty-seven. He's got to be lower than Pigpen. I'm sorry, but he does. You think so? Yeah. See, I don't think so because this is their twenty-seven rating in terms of their twenty-seven ness as part of the twenty-seven club. Yeah, I think Pigpen is, and lower. I feel like. I mean, higher. yeah, but I feel like the whole story and the context around everything to me makes him like, but it, first of all, he is unique in the 27 club. Cause he's one of the, he's one of the only members who killed himself. Like who we know committed suicide. Yeah. The other members, it was like maybe suicide, but maybe accidental death. So like that makes it somewhat unique, but that makes it less 27 club E to me that there's no mystery. We know he killed himself. He wrote a note. Um, yeah, maybe. And in my mind, it's like there are diehard deadheads who know for a fact pig pens in the 27 Club. They're aware of the 27 Club. Very few people, I believe, know Pete Ham is in the... I mean, I'd love to give him this because he had such yeah, a yeah, shit yeah. life, but... <laughs> he got nothing else. I think it's yeah. got to be like a three for me. Oh, man. I really feel like... I'm not saying we should go that high, but I feel like he should be somewhere in between Pigpen and Alan Wilson, like a seven or an eight or something. I think he's less than Pigpen. I really do. Just, I feel like... Like, the... The 20... Like, I we haven't even put what 27-ness is into context because... Well, we kind of did. I think it's... But... Yeah, well, right. But we also immediately abandoned that. Yeah. I think it's funnier to have it be... A nonsensical ethereal value that yeah. yeah changes every time, but to me, I think between the like story of just like this struggling musician who I think the story waffles is... wildly between having zero money and being one of the most famous people like in the world, yeah, and then also who, yeah, I don't know. Here's my I guess thing, I the story the is very thing... good. Yeah, his legacy. And yeah. how well known he is for the Twenty Seven Club is right. very, very low. True. And he has never, ever been in a mural. Here's the thing that I think hurts Pete Ham the most is that he died during a time when he was not in any sort of spotlight. Yeah. Like part of the Twenty Seven Club ness is that you die when you're like at your peak or you're yes. like about to be great or about to be you know like 
all that or like with Pigpen, he kind of died later into like his personal career with the Grateful Dead, but like the Grateful Dead were on their rise They're up to 72 being, Europe you know, tour. The great yeah. yeah, the great band, the great jam band of all time. And so I do feel like it does hurt like if Pete Ham had died like right before Wish You Were Here or something or like just at yeah. a time where it was more prominent rather than like a few months after everyone forgets the band exists because their most recent album just disappeared and no one really cared about it anyway mm-hmm. like i i guess i'm saying you're kind of talking me around because i do feel like he, yeah he gets hurt right. in some of those ways even though i mean yeah i think the story is interesting i think it's yeah. very sad i think it since it's so different and unique i think that he loses points for that which is unfortunate, yeah. But you, what, you know, so wait, what did you say? A three? I said like a three, because he's got to be lower than Pigpen, unless we raise Pigpen. I, you know, I don't think we can raise Pigpen. <laughs> I don't think, and I really don't think we can. God, this is a tough one because we a bunch to tried a four. To, yeah, we've tried to we've tried to match up here, and I know it's just probably because I just have a lot more personal love for Pete Ham. Yeah. But I'm feeling very. I I'll I'll, I'll have to take a four because I feel very strongly it should be like a an eight. But but I don't think I'm gonna be able to talk you into yeah. that. So well, um, like if if I called Melanie in here and I was like, "Have you heard of the band The Grateful Dead?" She would say, "Yes." Have you heard of Badfinger? Yeah. No, I have no idea who that is. You didn't play a bunch of Badfinger for Melanie over the last few weeks. I tend to um, listen to it with headphones on because I know she'll oh, be like, okay. "What is this?" Oh, interesting. Badfinger is one where I, at least for Shelby, uh, very much uh, something she would enjoy. Melanie will tell you this herself, so I don't feel bad saying this. She has an awful taste in music. Oh, okay. So somebody asked, one Mm -hmm. of my friends asked her one time, they were like, oh, what kind of music do you like? And she was like, it's not good. Don't worry about it. And so, (laughs) like, this music will just, like, go right over her head. She just does not care. All right. Well, so Pete Ham, a, a lowly four out of 27. I know. Poor, it, poor guy. And I feel bad, but that's where yeah. it's got to be, yeah, man. Oh, man. I don't know. I'm. All right. Well, that has been Bad Finger and the story of Pete Ham. Yeah. Uh, we will move on next week to an even less well-known member of the 27 oh, yeah. club. See, and that's where <laughs> and, I, uh, I know he's going to be We're only going lower. downhill here. <laughs> and then, see, that's part of the reason why I think he should be higher, because I think having three people under five is pretty, I think that's Well, a then we should have gone higher with harsh, Pigpen, because Pete Ham has to be lower than Pigpen. Fuck. All right, what if Pigpen's a seven and Pete Ham's a six? That's high though. <laughs> Maybe a six and a five. We cannot. We cannot do this. Fine. I don't even. I don't even agree. Pigpen should be higher, but I just can't stand for Pete Ham to be so slighted. So, all right. Well, thank you for making it through three whole episodes on a band you either love or don't care about at all. Hopefully, you found some good some good music from them. I think. I think anyone would at least find some some good greatest hits from Batman. Yeah, I think there could be a at least a nine out of ten album within oh, yeah, all of sure. their yeah. yeah. So, so we'll see you uh, next time at the crossroads.
Thanks. I'll see you on the other side of that thing. Brought to you by the Beach Boys Boys. Uh, I keep seeing commercials for the new Elvis movie, and I... it The guy doesn't look like Elvis. I don't understand why everyone's excited about him being so good. Dude, Unless he sounds a lot like Elvis, then he, he no. looks nothing like Elvis to me. It's, it's weird. Here's the thing. Jake, yeah, our friend... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love him to death, right? Yeah. He has some of the worst opinions I've ever heard. Um, he really wants to... He's been tweeting about how badly he wants to see a new Elvis yeah. movie. I'm like, it looks like trash. Yeah. Okay, here we go. I found a perfect Elvis next to the guy playing Elvis and how little he looks like him picture. <laughs> and oh, I think perfect. the caption is... Oh, he nails his swagger, not looking like him. So, I mean, look, I guess if he... Whatever, yeah. I guess if he acts super well, then it's not a big deal. But right, uh, I can't imagine that's the case, though. Uh, oh um, shit! I did that. But wrong. also, I it just looks sent like you a Google search. I should send you the picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I see. It, yeah, it gave it's like the, the first that you're really gonna... two of or, yeah, a bunch of the first ones are him next to Elvis, and it's like he just doesn't. Well, look then it's like, like him. This guy's in a shitload of makeup too to presumably make him look like Elvis, and they still didn't get it. He looks like I guess I could believe that he's Elvis's little brother, kind of. It's like <laughs> it's like one. they scrunched. <laughs> They, yeah, exactly. They took Elvis's face and then scrunched yeah, it in. Yeah, exactly. It's like weird. his eyes are too close. His nose is. Here's the thing. I don't even thin. know. I feel like they should have given him a prosthetic nose. Honestly, I feel like they should have. Like you know. Yes. So I just watched the the Obi Wan show started with you and oh, McGregor, yeah. and very famously, at least for the prequels, I don't know if they did it for the show, but for the prequels, they gave him like nose putty so that his nose looked more like Alec Guinness's. I did not know. Yeah. That. And it's like they mm. and it they kind of just you know widened it out a little bit like on the bridge and so he like looked more like Alec Guinness and I feel like they should have done something like that because the nose is the biggest thing that when I look at them I immediately think oh he looks nothing like Elvis his nose is wildly different the the nose and the eyes because yeah like, Elvis's eyes first, are way bigger his eyes are really small the first glaring thing that absolutely the nose I yeah. thought that same thing when I looked at this picture but like. Not only his nose, but like his philtrum is very different. Yeah. Like, but then his eyes, yeah, they're like yeah. closer together. And th I never saw Rocket Man, but I can agree that Taron Egerton, yeah, says, yeah something like that, looks just like fucking yeah. uh, Elton John did. And there are other ones where it's like, or like um, Walk the Line, Walking Phoenix doesn't really look like Johnny Cash, but he like does a believable performance. Yeah. I think. I think he does he does a good job as yeah. And he sells yeah. the like I don't know, the Johnny Cash vibe for sure. And he's like not a good looking man, much like Johnny Cash right. isn't. 
this guy's a pretty boy. Elvis was like attractive for his days, but he's not really like to today's standards. Like this guy looks like a fuck boy. Yeah. Elvis looked like Elvis a just looks like kid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Elvis. Like he yeah. looks like, you know. And so it's I don't know. I feel like they could have cast it better. Yeah. Do you want to hear a voice memo Paul just sent me? <laughs> okay. You and I did like an art show. Or like so a gallery or exhibit or something like that where we just uh, had like a bunch of photos of all of the, like all the stupid photos that we've taken together. And it's just an exhibit about our friendship and stuff like that. Kind of like in the Antarctica Vespucci um, music video, but we like really commit to it. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> that's pretty fun. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Yeah.